0: Revelation 21, uh, beginning another new section of this wonderful book that we've been studying for, for quite a while. The, the title of our message this morning is, The First Things Have Passed Away. And we find ourselves still in this uh, last section of the book that really composes the majority, obviously, of Revelation. But we've made it all the way down to the last step of our uh, outline of the book of revelation the new heavens and the and the new earth and as we're going to see this is another transition into another uh part of the vision that John has had that he has written down and although it's taken us uh well over a year to get through this book i think that from the from the from the text it would seem that John was visited by the angel and basically uh, wrote this down in quick sequence. Probably all happened in one day, and uh, what a what a momentous day it must have been for John to have this vision and be told to record these things. So it's uh, easy for us to lose kind of the big picture, but if you read through the book of Revelation and under. In like one sitting, probably I don't know, take you a half hour maybe to read Revelation, probably barely even that long. Um, and you understand, keep in mind kind of the what we've tried to do, the symbology and and the things that are being spoken of, you would have a you'd have a much better understanding overall picture of what's going on here in the book. That's why I try to review these things so we can remember. Uh, what we're talking about and not get lost in the, in the veins of the leaves and kind of remember the whole forest. So Revelation 119 gives us the outline, oftentimes gives us the outline of the book of Revelation. Oftentimes uh, authors of Scripture do this for us to help us understand what they're writing about. And so God told John to write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. The things which we have seen was chapter 1. It's the the vision of the risen Christ, the authority behind the message uh, to help remind us uh, that these things are true. They come from God himself, given to an angel, given to John And now given to these seven churches that we read about and the things which are seven literal churches that existed in the first century when John was writing. He was familiar with most of them. He actually pastored one of them, the church in Ephesus, at one point in time. Uh, History will tell us that the Apostle John was a a pastor there. It's a mistake to see these seven churches as as being symbolic of different periods of time and of the church age and this kind of thing. There are aspects of that that are true. If you just kind of take anecdotal evidence from the words that are said to these churches, you can make a case that that they represent periods of time, but that's not taking into uh, consideration the whole uh, picture of what's being presented. Seven literal churches... Uh, that received this book of Revelation and God had specific messages for these churches. Primarily the message was you need to fix this area of your life to be uh, walking in accordance with the word or you need to continue doing X, Y, or Z whatever it was. Uh, Very much messages like First and 2 Thessalonians, Ephesians, Galatians, same kind of thing. That's what they're called epistles, the Revelation uh, epistles, letters to churches. That's chapters 2 and 3. And then the things which will take place after these things begins in chapter 4. A, a scene in heaven why are these things about to take place uh, is described in chapters 4. And five, under what authority are they taking place? If you'll remember, the the Lamb, Jesus Christ himself is the one who is opening this seven-sealed scroll through which all of these judgments took place that we learned about in chapter 6 through 19. And it culminates in Jesus' second coming to the earth wherein he establishes his kingdom upon the earth. So we have a very... Clear uh, timeline that's that's laid out in this in this book, uh, as well as the Bible as a whole itself. Uh, the tribulation period, a seven-year tribulation period, we get that from the Book of Daniel, and also within Revelation, we know the second half of the tribulation is forty-two months when the Antichrist will reign. That's three and a half years. It's the second half. So the first half must have been 42 months as well. Uh, That's why it's called a half. Uh, Like in uh, college basketball, the game is divided into halves. They're not quarters. It took me a long time to figure this out as a kid. Why are they quarters in the NBA but only halves in college basketball? That's because it's a quarter of the time. (laughs) Four quarters in football, two halves in college basketball. Two halves in the tribulation. First half is 42 months. The second half is 42 months. That's seven years. Uh, That will end with Jesus Christ coming again, and then the kingdom will be on the earth. Only after Jesus comes again will there be a kingdom upon the earth. Revelation 20 tells us six times that that kingdom will last 1,000 years. And then uh, what we saw last time was this great white throne judgment. The thousand-year kingdom ends with Satan being released for a very short period of time. Uh, number of reasons for that. You can go back and and listen to those uh, if you need a refresher. Uh, After Satan is cast into the lake of fire, a great white throne judgment will take place. We learned about that last week where all of the, essentially, the gist of it is all of the unsaved, of all of human history will be raised up to stand before God and be judged on the basis of their works. Why would they be judged on the basis of their works? We're not judged on our works uh, as Christians. Well, that's because we put our works on Jesus Christ. We trusted that He paid the penalty for our works, these individuals who will stand at the great white throne judgment decided to take it on themselves. Decided that yeah, my my good basically outweighs my bad. I'll be fine when I stand before God. A very foolish decision to have made because any sin separates us from God and our works cannot possibly uh, pay for the eternality of sin. See, sin separates us from God forever. Therefore, it takes the blood of the eternal Son of God to pay the price for those sins, and that's our only recourse, is to trust in what He did for us. Otherwise, we're going to be judged on the basis of our works at the end of the kingdom period, before what we're going to learn about beginning today with the eternal state and that's what we that's what we'll find beginning in revelation twenty one and twenty two we talked about this the uh last time the great white throne judgment the literal dissolution of this heaven and earth in which we are living uh that's is what is described there in revelation uh 20 and verse 11 says then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. One thing that is that is just becoming more and more clear, I think it's just because of the two areas of the Bible that I'm dealing with is the idea of repetition and how important that is to God. If In uh, the book of Proverbs we've had It seems like one lesson after the next about adultery and the consequences of it, the evil nature of it, and uh, and all of its forms. And uh, it seems like we might be talking about that a lot. Well, that's because Proverbs talks about it a lot. Because it's important to God. It's important to God to emphasize a literal 1,000 year kingdom on the earth. He says it six times in Revelation 20. In this one verse he mentions the fact that the earth, this heaven and earth in which we are living and familiar with is going to disappear one day at the end of the kingdom. It's mentioned twice there in verse 11, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. They are gone. They cease to exist as we know it. Peter says that even the the very elements themselves will, will disappear And then the dead were raised, and we narrowed it down last time that this can only be speaking of unsaved dead. The others, the saved dead, have already been raised and judged prior to this. And they are judged on the basis of their deeds, as I mentioned, because uh, they have not had their faith in Christ, and then they are cast into the lake of fire Uh, Again, another repetition. This idea of a lake of fire, a a place of eternal conscious punishment for the unsaved uh, that was created for the devil and his angels. However, uh, in other words, God doesn't want any person to be there. He's very long-suffering, not willing that any would perish, but for all to come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. He doesn't put anybody there uh, out of spite or anything like that. He doesn't desire for any person to be there. That's not what it was created for. However, if the person will not accept salvation by faith, right, a free gift of righteousness offered to them, that is their destiny. And that's the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire this idea of a of a literal place of conscious torment is one that is really throughout the bible and we can't uh we can't disregard it like so many in the church are doing today and that brings us to a much different note <laughs> in chapter 21 than what chapter 20 ends with this is this is the glory. This is the glorious uh, future that all people who have trusted in God and His provision for sin have to look forward to really in the rest of, of the book of Revelation. And it, it is describing how life was intended to be with God and how it will be for eternity for those who have trusted in Him. The first things have passed away. So we'll look at a new creation, the new Jerusalem and a new way of life. Really just concentrating on the first four verses this morning of Revelation 21 which say, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the the first things have passed away. And for this to happen, uh, for there to be a place for us to live, there has to be a new creation. And that's what we see beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Another bit of repetition that John uses really throughout the book of Revelation, but in particular here in these last few chapters, is this idea of, then I saw. It's repeated over and over and over, giving us a sequence of events that are going to take place. Revelation 19.11 is kind of the beginning of this whole ending section of the book. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, Christ comes again. So after the seven year tribulation ends, then, or the the concluding event of the seven year tribulation, kind of how it, whichever way you want to look at it, then Christ comes to the earth. Then I saw an angel, verse 17, standing. Uh, and after Christ comes, then he has eradicated his enemies. The birds of the air come and assemble and eat the flesh of these people, God's enemies. Then the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs and whose presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And they're cast into the lake of fire, Verse verses 20 and 21. Then, verse twenty-one of chapter 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven and Satan is cast into the abyss. Sequence of events. Christ comes out of heaven, eradicates his enemies from the earth. The, beast, the, the antichrist and false prophet are cast into the lake of fire at the end of the tribulation when Christ comes again. Then Satan is bound with a great chain and cast into the abyss. Verse 4, then I saw thrones and they sat on them. That's you and me, believers in Christ ruling and reigning with Christ. And he also sees the souls of tribulation saints essentially. They will be brought to life and rule and reign with Christ during this thousand year kingdom that is repeated uh, six times in seven Verses. And then in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, something else is going to take place. Satan will be released and then finally cast into the lake of fire. Sequence of events. So then last week we saw the great white throne judgment, and now again something else takes place after the tribulation, after the thousand year kingdom period. After the great white throne judgment, then the next event on the timeline is a new heaven and a new earth. And now this word for new is the Greek term kainos. And it basically has three definitions in the the BDAG. That's just kind of short for four people's names. That's the kind of the go-to Greek dictionary or lexicon, if you want to sound like a theologian you call it a lexicon. Uh, It's really, it's a dictionary (laughs) for the words that are in the Bible. Uh, It gives three definitions for this word kinos, because there is some dispute among theologians about what is actually being described here. Is this describing the kingdom period? Uh, Is this describing a renovation of the earth, or is this describing an entirely new creation? And well, here's our three definitions for this word for kainos, new, translated as new. Uh, and they're they're pretty simple definitions. This word can either mean something that is in existence for a short period of time. Uh, it it can be something that wasn't previously known. Uh, it something that wasn't previously known about. Perhaps it was in existence, but it wasn't known, and now it is. And it can also refer to something which is recent. Uh, and so I'm going to submit to you that this is describing something that has been in existence for a short period of time. When uh, John is speaking of it here, it is as it says, literally, a new heaven and a new earth, because after all, the old earth and the old heaven had disappeared, as is stated there in verse 11. And we saw in Second Peter as well, describing the dissolution of this current uh, universe, if you will, that we live within. Verse 11 of Revelation 20, the great white throne is seen, and god is sitting on it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them and so now we see a new heaven and a new earth this is a a creation that is hasn't been in existence before but now is after the thousand year kingdom after the great white throne judgment, and as is described here, this creation will last for eternity. It is a, I personally believe, not a renovation. Some good scholars will say that, that the old earth is going to be renovated, and that's where we will live. I think that takes place during the kingdom period. This is something completely new. A new heaven and a new earth, a new ex nihilo, fancy way of saying uh, out of nothing. That's what ex nihilo means. That's the way God created this earth. You may hear of that speaking of Genesis, the Genesis creation account. God spoke it into existence. Ex nihilo, the, the uncaused cause, if you will. How did, it, how did everything get here? Why are we here uh, is often the the question of philosophers, and it always goes back to origins. Did we come from uh, from some stone crystals? Was that the first thing? Or <laughs> are, 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 are crystals our God, or is there a, an all powerful, almighty, all knowing Creator who spoke this place into existence from nothing? I would go with option B, according to the scriptures. And he's going to do that again with this, new heaven and new earth. And I think the confusion comes in when we uh, don't understand properly what the Old Testament prophets say using this same kind of language. And we don't apply it across the board with all of the scripture, keeping in mind Concepts like progressive revelation. Like Isaiah knew some things about the world, God reveals things to him, and then John comes along and reveals more progressively as we go through the scriptures, revealing more information from God, not changing what Isaiah said, but giving more information about it. That is this idea of progressive revelation. So Isaiah mentions a new heaven and a new earth in Isaiah 65, 17, recording the the words of God, for behold I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. That's very much like what John is describing here in Revelation 21. But if we go on to read Isaiah 65, it is a very clear description of the kingdom period following this statement with the the lion and the lamb lying together and the children playing with the the vipers and these kinds of things the the, uh, uh, lions eating grass and all those kind of descriptions that are very clearly describing the kingdom period. However, he uses this language of a new heavens and a new earth. He also does it in Isaiah 66 in verse 2. It says, "...for my hand made all these things," God, of course speaking, "...thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word." And describing, again, kind of the kingdom period, in verse 66 or chapter 66 even though he's speaking of creating uh, something new so uh, theologians will go to Isaiah and say and combine that with what we see in Revelation and kind of get us confused and you will come across some who will say no Revelation 21 and 22 is it's a description of the kingdom It's just the kingdom period and because Isaiah used this same language. And the the problem that we're not seeing is again this idea of progressive revelation. And we get to it, I believe it's on the next slide actually, that what Isaiah is doing is describing the entirety of the time period after the end of the tribulation. Things will be radically different after the tribulation ends in the kingdom period uh, than they are today. And then again in the eternal state, eternity, as we read about in Revelation 21 and 22, it will be radically different again from even the kingdom period and that happens because this is a new creation as it says here, literally, a new heaven and a new earth. It even mentions that there's no sea there in verse 21, and there is no longer any sea. And there's a couple of different ways to to look at this idea of a no sea. Some will say, oh, it's just metaphorical, just the sea is kind of looked at as being uh, representative of evil, uh, it's not compatible for man to be on the sea and this kind of thing, and that's that's kind of basically all there, all that's being stated there. On the other hand, we could look at it literally uh, and say that there won't be any sea, and I wouldn't take it necessarily to mean that the new heaven and the new earth won't have any water. That's kind of hard for me to, to comprehend. I think it perhaps as a combination of the two, the metaphorical language and the literal language, the sea is not going to play the role that it does in the world today. We living in, in middle America, uh, Michigan, where we can be uh, separated we are literally separated from the ocean uh, geographically, but we can also be separated from its impact on the world uh, to our detriment. The ocean is very important. In fact, the ocean is what guides our climate, not Al Gore and (laughs) the idea of trapping carbon. That isn't going to do anything. Have you seen the world from outer space, the pictures of it? it? It looks blue, and it looks blue for a reason because the overwhelming majority of our Earth's surface is covered in very deep water. And that is what has an effect on our weather and our climate, in fact. Uh, and this, in the new heaven, and the new earth, is going to be dramatically different, so much so, probably, if you were able to look at the new heaven, and the, or the new earth from the new heaven, in the eternal state, in this new creation, it's probably not going to look blue. There's probably be water there. It's hard for me to even conceive of something that doesn't have water. Uh, Nevertheless, it's going to be dramatically different than the current earth that we live on. And that's the point that is being made there. The first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. I mean, it's completely different. The Israelites were very familiar with the sea. All of the people that, uh, that essentially that are uh, receivers of this, most of them are very coastal communities, close to the ocean, dependent upon the ocean. It's not going to be that way in the new heaven and the new earth. It is a new creation, ex nihilo. God is going to speak it into existence the same way that he did the first time. And there is also going to be a new Jerusalem. Not only is there going to be a new heaven and a new earth, but there's also going to be a new Jerusalem. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice that he sees a uh the ho- the holy city and this is uh this idea of being holy is a term that can uh not again not be understood in its entirety it doesn't just mean a holiness doesn't just mean not having sin because you and I can be holy even though we are Sinners, holy, holiness at its root simply means to be separated, separated for service, and that, that's the very definition of being a believer in Christ. That's why God saves us. He doesn't save us because we're so great uh, and, and we deserve it. He saves us out of his graciousness so that we can serve him. That's the idea of being Holy. The uh the implements for the temple worship were said to be holy. That isn't because some priest uh back in the Jewish time said a special prayer over them or uh rubbed them with some oil or something like that. No, it it they were holy. These implements were holy because they were separated for use only in the temple. There was they weren't used for common purposes, cooking bread or making meals for people in their homes. No, they were set apart completely, exclusively to be used in the temple period. And that is the description of this new city here in verse 2. I saw the the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. So this city is separated is purposeful. Is made exclusively for the use of God, essentially, and, and and that is the reason for the holiness. It is set apart for a for a special purpose, as opposed to man's city, and that man's city uh, in the scriptures is. uh Represented the, the man's city according to the scriptures is the city of Babylon that so much of the end part of Revelation has been about in in revel beginning in Revelation 17 really and 18 we have this description of what if you'll remember a literal city Babylon that will rise to prominence in the end and essentially be the headquarters of uh, the end times one world government will be in a literal city Babylon. Personally I don't see any reason for it to not be in Babylon, Iraq present day. Uh, That will be according to what we read in Revelation that kind of the headquarters city for this coming kingdom. And it makes sense when we understand the Bible in its totality, the kind of the whole council of God, if you will, it makes a lot of sense because that was the original city of rebellion against God all the way back in Genesis after the flood, the first place that the first city that was built was built in complete rebellion against God contrary to his purposes. You can read about that in Genesis 11 verse 1. After the flood, this is. It says, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. That's uh, Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, uh, Babylon, if you will. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And what had God told Moses and his sons to do after the flood? Be fruitful and multiply and scatter yourselves over the entirety of the earth. So this city in the land of Shinar that we come to know as Babel or Babylon and the Tower of Babel it was, is what this is being described here in Genesis 11. Babel and Babylon in Hebrew, exactly the same words. Uh, and Babylon is the first city that was constructed on the earth according to this, and it was made for the express purpose of rebelling against God. And the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, in the tribulation period, his entire purpose for being is to oppose God and his plan for this earth and to create a kingdom upon the earth that he rules over in this same city of Babylon in rebellion against God. God, as we see, uh, have seen in Revelation 17 and 18 will deal with this city in the seventh bold judgment and he will come and God will establish his kingdom upon the earth. This new Jerusalem is God's City, it is a holy city. It is a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Now that's kind of interesting. I thought you said heaven was destroyed. And now we have this other heaven, and uh, but this new Jerusalem is coming down out of the other heaven. No, we have to understand that there are several heavens. There are at least three heavens that are mentioned in the scriptures. Uh, that same word for heaven is used to describe the bird, uh, the part of the world where the birds fly around. that's described as heaven, the birds of the heaven. Uh, the stars are described as heaven, the stars of heaven. Uh, we can look we can think of that as the atmosphere being the first heaven. The stars are being the second heaven, kind of the universe. And then this heaven, where this new Jerusalem is coming from is the third heaven <laughs> that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 12, a place where he was caught up to to uh, be spoken to, if you will. 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul says, I know a man in Christ who, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows such a man was caught up to the third Heaven. This is God's realm, is what is being described there by Paul in Second Corinthians 12, the third heaven. This place where you and I are destined to go to. When Christ comes for us again at the rapture of the church, Jesus is there now in the third heaven, according to John 14, preparing a place for us to live a temporary uh, place and we'll even mention that a little bit later as well. That's where he is, preparing a place for us. He will come into this world into the into the first heaven, if you will, according to 1 Thessalonians 4 and he will catch us up to meet us there in the air, in the first heaven, and then he will take us back to the third heaven in the place that he is preparing for us to live. God's realm, that's where he's going to take us to, and that's where this new Jerusalem is coming from. The the third heaven, God's dwelling place is not going to be destroyed when the first earth and the first heaven are destroyed. That's kind of our our realm, our universe, the creation that we read about in Genesis 1. That is going to cease to exist. God will still be there in his realm orchestrating all of this. And he will create a new heaven and a new earth without uh, sin for us to dwell in for eternity. In this new Jerusalem, kind of, it uses that same word, kinos, that we saw for new heaven and new earth. And this time I think it's being used as, uh, in reference to uh, the old Jerusalem. It's new compared to the old Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem is the one that was on the earth where Jesus will rule and reign over his kingdom for a thousand years. The same city where he was tried and killed, buried and rose again. That's the old Jerusalem. This is a new Jerusalem. That place is God's city as well, God's city on this fallen earth. He states that a number of times. In his land, Israel is God's land. He has it on loan to the Jewish people. Uh, And he also is going to have this new Jerusalem, this place where we will dwell for eternity. And notice that it is made ready as a bride. As a bride. I have it emphasized there on the screen. If you can see that coming, this uh, I saw the holy city, verse two, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. That this is an indication to us. Figurative language is being used here. This isn't necessarily a description of of the city's title, or a title for the people who will be there, or something like that. In this case, it is figurative language describing how the city was prepared for us. Uh, Isaiah 61.10 says, "'I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, my soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation.'" He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This is what God has done for us in righteousness. He's wrapped us in a cloak of righteousness. Notice again uh, in Isaiah, clearly presenting salvation by grace through faith that we don't earn it. He goes on later to say all our works are like filthy rags, Isaiah does. That's because our righteousness can only come from one source, and it's from God. He wraps us in it when we trust in him by way of faith. And that is compared to the way that a a groom and a bride are prepared for their wedding. They're dressed, they're prepared, they, they are made ready for The event. We are made ready for eternity by being wrapped in the righteousness of God by way of faith in Christ. This that's the way this city is being described here. It is made ready by God the same way that a bride is made ready for her husband uh, on the wedding day. uh and essentially the rest of the book of revelation is going to describe this city and how god has prepared it what he's what he's doing how it's going to be for us and that's what is that's this is the city that abraham was looking for according to hebrews 11 in verse 10 speaking of Abraham he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was living his life looking forward to eternity with God. That's the implication of what's being described there. He's not looking he wasn't looking for some sort of mystical, magical city on the earth that God secretly constructed. No. Very obviously, he's living with his eyes focused on eternity, the same way that we ought to be uh, walking by faith. Speaking of all of the, the hall of fame of faith, Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 speaks of these people, saying, "...all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance." and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, and and he has prepared a city for them. God is preparing this place for us to live, and it is to be the motivation for us to live for him today, like these people in Hebrews chapter 11. We are not obedient to Christ because he's going to pull the rug out from under our feet, and we're going to fall into hell one day. That is not to be our motivation. That is incorrect motivation. Once we have trusted in Christ, we pass from death into life. John 5.24 and a myriad of other places describe that. Our motivation for obedience is to be the fact that we are going to live with God forever in the new Jerusalem, the place that He has prepared for us. And this, uh, the New Jerusalem is not what Christ is preparing for us. That's not the place that he's uh, described in John 14. That's not the New Jerusalem. What he is described in John 14, that he goes to prepare a place for us, is a temporary dwelling place. We'll probably be in those places for, oh, I don't know, seven years plus some Somewhere in that range, that's where we're going to be, uh, and you can tell from the language it uses that place that Jesus is going to prepare for us uses the term topos, and we see that in Luke chapter two. Also, uh, if you'll remember, the birth of Christ, uh, Mary and Joseph go to an inn. There's no place. There's no place for them. In the inn, there's no room for them. In the inn, rooms and in and inns are temporary dwelling places. You go in there for a period of time and then you leave. Uh, that's that term, topos, to to describe uh, the room that Mary and Joseph wanted to have so that she could give birth to Jesus. Same term used to describe the place where Jesus is going to. Uh, prepare for us. The King James kind of gets it wrong there, unfortunately, in describing that as a mansion. That would be more of a permanent type of dwelling place. Uh, The English word mansion is used simply because it's similar to the Latin term for this bad mistake in uh, translation there. It's a temporary uh, dwelling place. This New Jerusalem is going to be a permanent dwelling place. For eternity we will dwell in this place. From here, That's why this arrow, beginning here after the great white throne judgment, this arrow just sort of points off and off and off, <laughs> way over there. This is eternity that God is describing here for us. In the book of Revelation, this is not a temporary dwelling place, but a permanent dwelling place. That is where we will be, uh, that is being prepared by God, probably, perhaps already is uh, prepared by God. And isn't it interesting that he uses this kind of marriage language to describe this place and how it's prepared? God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, God gives us all of these kinds of pictures, metaphors for things that he does in life. Uh, as we mentioned in our study of Proverbs this, this morning, marriage life, in spite of what we see on TV and movies and every moment of the day that, <laughs> that the outside world has influence on us, describes marriage as being a drag. And it's kind of dumb, and the cool people aren't married, uh, only the nerds are married, and the, the wife's in charge, the husband's an idiot, all of these kinds of things, exactly contrary to the scriptures. Married life is structured and ordered and precious, according to Proverbs 31:10. It is a, a precious institution that demonstrates to us the relationship between God and man, and it's permanent. That's why it's permanent. That's the reason why the rules are there, the way that they are to give us a wonderful picture of God and his relationship with us. And furthermore, we get a a wonderful picture of the Trinity within marriage and family. Uh, The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, a family is kind of made up of three parts, one family, three parts, Three distinct roles for the individuals within it, but they make up one family, husband, wife, and children. A very good uh picture of the Trinity. The temple. There's another good one. The temple and the tabernacle. We even see that word here in our passage is a is a wonderful picture of this place. In fact, the temple is was designed to be modeled after this place that we are uh, where we are going to dwell for eternity in this new Jerusalem God gives us these pictures so we can understand him better we can look forward to being with him we can look forward to this new way of life that we are going to experience verse for eternity. And this, this ought to be uh, motivating for us. This is the way God originally created the world to be. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, don't let the skeptics confuse you. Oh, it's a contradiction in the Bible. Why does it talk about all of the creation in Genesis 1? And then it seems to go back uh, in Genesis chapter 2, and now we're talking about the creation of man again, but that already, uh, the Bible isn't just a a novel. (laughs) There is a sequence of events, but sometimes he goes back and gives more information about important things that have happened. That's exactly what chapter 2 is. Giving more information about the most important part of creation, you and me. How did we get here? Why are we here? What is our life Supposed to be like. It's supposed to be one of perfect communion between us as God's creation and God our creator. That's the way it was in Genesis chapter 2. It's going to be like that again in the future. And of course, it's much, much better than it was in the desert for the Israelite people. This will be much, much better than it was for them. Nevertheless, they were in the presence of God himself in the desert. Exodus chapter 40 beginning in verse 34, when the Holy Spirit comes to the people of Israel and indwells their tabernacle it says then, verse 34, Exodus 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. And Moses couldn't go in there when it was. This will be radically different from that. We were going to be there with God when this happens. And the reason why we can read about a new heaven and a new earth in Isaiah, and that be describing the kingdom, and this uh, be describing the eternal state, is because this is his promise being fulfilled in two steps, if you will. And very similar to the way Jesus' first advent and Jesus' second advent are covered by the prophets, Isaiah in particular, with even within one verse. We have Isaiah 61 describing Jesus' coming the first time and his second coming to the earth. And they're kind of seen as one prophecy, and yet clearly there are thousands of years between the two. This uh, language of the Old Testament is describing all of the time after the tribulation period, kingdom and eternal state, as if it's one a continuous period of time. But John is revealing to us that there's a break. There's a 1,000-year kingdom, a great white throne judgment, and then into eternity. God's promise fulfilled in two steps, very much like Jesus' coming to the earth. Fulfilled in two steps. Comes the first time to die for sin, the second time to eradicate sin and establish his uh, kingdom, upon the earth zephaniah speaks of god dwelling with people and he most certainly will in the kingdom in the person of jesus christ zephaniah 3:17 the lord your god is in your midst a victorious warrior he will exult over you with joy he will be quiet in his love he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy describing the kingdom period and christ himself living among his people. Revelation 21, uh, verses 3 through 4, is the Trinity. We are living in the presence of all of God. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, will come to the earth, establish his kingdom. That will be unimaginable glory for us. This will be even more so. We will be living in a a place with God where sin and all of its consequences are completely, fully eradicated. Absolutely no trace left of sin anymore. As great as the kingdom will be, people will still die. There's still going to be rebellion at the end of it. We see that happening. People will still side with Satan. People will still die. Uh, there's still going to be some measure of difficulties, even though Christ is here, and it it will be immeasurably better than it is right now. This, there will be no more consequences of sin. So much so that uh, that God, it says himself in verse 4, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And again, the Old Testament prophets kind of make a mention of that. Our call to worship this morning, Isaiah 25 in verse 8 mentions this idea of uh, death being swallowed up. He will swallow up death for all time and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach from his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Again, Isaiah 25 speaking of the kingdom and eternity in one passage as if it's just one uh, combined event. And in a way, it is. But it comes in two stages. Kingdom for a thousand years and then eternity for eternity. Uh, is the way that it will be. And there will be no more pain that came in as a result of sin. Genesis 3.16, God tells Eve that she will conceive or give birth to children in pain uh, because of sin. There will be no more death. Death was not part of God's original creation. Reject outright, out of hand, anyone who's trying to tell you that there's death and destruction in Genesis chapter one, not so there's no gap between Genesis one and Genesis two, where tens of millions of people and things died not true uh, it was very good it wasn't just good it was very good in genesis one thirty one there was no death, there was no destruction there were, there was no pain or crying or mourning or any of these things in Genesis one and two. All of that started with sin in Genesis chapter 3. And in fact, uh, we are going to be living with God in his totality during this time. That's what it, this ca- can be confusing passage that maybe we'll spend more time looking at uh, later. 1 Corinthians fifteen I'll just read it to you. Uh, then comes the end. It says, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Paul describing the resurrection and end time events. He says, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. That's the, the purpose for the kingdom, is for Christ to rule and have all authority over this earth everything has been abolished. Satan himself at the end of the kingdom we learned about in Revelation 21. Verse 25, 1 Corinthians 15. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's what we just finished reading about in Revelation uh, 6 through 20. Christ putting all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he has accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. When we get to eternity, we will perfectly understand the Trinity. It will be right there for us in full view. We will be living amongst it. When all of the consequences of sin are dealt with, eradicated, living in the new heaven and the new earth, this new creation with a new Jerusalem, death will play no part in it. That's why we have to be raptured one day. That's why we have to cast off this old, a sinful body that we have and be given a new glorious one, fit for eternity. It's fit to live in this place that God has reserved for us. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four. but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death... Where is your sting? And it is eradicated. It will be eradicated. And we will live forever with Christ in this new way of life, in a new creation, a new Jerusalem with a new way of life with no sin. And this is to be our motivation for the Christian life today. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation that so amazingly reveals these truths to us about who you are, what you have done for us in the past, and what you've already done for us to supply for our future. We can't even understand concepts like eternity, but they're told to us nevertheless in the Bible, and we look forward to... uh, finding out really what it means. We thank you for making it possible for us to live with you for eternity through the shed blood of Christ. I thank you for making salvation so easy as simply just trusting in you. And after we have done that, I pray that you would motivate us to live for you, to be holy, separated for you, ready for service, uh, so that we can be pleasing to you knowing that we're going to live with you for eternity. I just pray that you would impress the, the, the vastness of eternity on our hearts and our minds and the importance of uh, telling people about the salvation that they can have through faith in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.